So today's scripture is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It's on page 810 in your pew Bible. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Wow, I'm super humbled to be able to worship with you all this afternoon. We are blessed so richly in so many ways. And our God calls us into his presence. This time of worship is founded on his promises. And our participation in this worship is now prayer. Starting with this prayer, but throughout the rest of this service, our prayers brought before our God who calls us his daughters and his sons and who loves us. And if any of you wonders, does God love me? You don't need to look any farther than the cross to know that he does. So please, will you pray with me? Father, I don't know another word that is said more often in our liturgy than that you are steadfast. That you have set your affection upon us, your love, and you are steadfast. You do not change. In you is life, and that life is that light is the life of men. We praise you that you do not change. Father, as the sun sets on another day, you have proven yet again that your love is steadfast. And it is not true because we sing it, but it is true because you have said it and because you have done it. Father, I pray that to a woman and to a man in this room that we would be drawn into your presence and that we would experience you engaging us. Father, your son Jesus taught us to call you Father. And in prayer, Jesus taught us to join ourselves to you and he also taught us to pray together corporately that we might be joined to one another, even in your presence. Father, the truth of the matter is we come with a lot of fear and a lot of trepidation. It has been referenced many times already that we are easily distracted. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, there would be a simplicity to it 
but a weightiness to it as well. Father, I pray that for those who are here who have separated ourselves from your law, that we would run back to you in repentance and rest. Father, for those who are here who have been overwhelmed by your law, would they see how you have sent your Son to fulfill it? And Lord Jesus, as Dan already prayed that we would be transformed and leave here different women and men than when we came in, would we rejoice in the hope that we have been given a new heart and a new spirit? Would you um, change us? We thank you and praise you that you know us. Father, you know our anger has just been right under the surface. You know that our hearts have lusted for power and for control and for pleasure. You know that we have all too often been ready to use others to meet our needs. So, Father, we can't fake who we are before you. In fact, it's your very word that exposes us. You have said it's alive and active, that it cuts to the very heart. And, Father, we feel exposed. I pray that we would know that you know us and that we would know beyond knowledge that we would experience the truth of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and of hope. Father, we need it individually and corporately. You have promised to provide it. Father, do your work in us now that is pleasing in your sight, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. All right, we continue in this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are titled Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as Nathan explained in the very first of these sermons, it's unsure, it's unclear as to whether this was one large sermon or whether it was Mar Matthew bringing together all the things that Jesus said so regularly. If nothing, we know that Scripture claims that these are the words of Christ spoken to his followers. And so they're good for us to engage with. And not just good for us, they are food for us. They're necessary for us to engage with. And so I want to make sure that you get a chance to turn to the passage that Sherry read for us. It's on page 810. And it's just four verses. And they're literally just two things that I want to do today, okay? Two things. It's in the outline on those back pages. If you need something to write on, turn there. I want you and us, I want us together to see Jesus' commitment to the law and why he has this commitment to the law. And then, as verse 19 says, therefore, right? And in seminary, we are always taught that whenever there's a therefore, we're asked, supposed to ask, what? what is that there for? <laughs> right? Therefore, in 19 and 20, what are Jesus' followers or the subjects of his kingdom, if you will, what is supposed to be our commitment to the law and why? The first one is going to take a little bit more time than the second. So if I spend eight to ten minutes on the first one, just know that I'm coming in through the second one with a little bit more speed, and you'll see what I mean. 
The Sermon on the Mount has started with Jesus seeing the crowds, him going up onto a hill and the crowds coming to him and him speaking. And he spoke these things that we call the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those. And then we went through them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we said, were these internal characteristics of those who draw near to Christ. And then ultimately... Blessed are those who go out as peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But those who listened to Jesus were really interested that Jesus proclaimed a blessing without talking about the law. He then went on to talk to his people about being salt and light, right? He said, look, you are salt of the earth. And as Nathan explained to us in this last sermon, the salt is that which keeps the world from decaying, right? You are salt of the earth, but if you lose your saltiness, how will you gain it again? You are the light of the world, that which dispels darkness. But if you hide your light, what will happen? Right, Nathan talked about those who follow Christ being salt and light. And remember the illustration that he gave. It's like the light of the moon. There's no light of the moon itself. It's reflective of the glory of God. Jesus is the salt, right? He's the one that came into the world that the decay of the world would not only be stopped, but would be reversed. And that's not just the decay of the world, that's the decay of our lives as well. Is there decay in your life that you need to see reversed? It is not your job to reverse it. Jesus is the salt. But the reason that we can be salt in the world is that union with Christ. Jesus is the light. John 1, right? The light shone into the darkness, and the darkness was not able to squelch it. My job at my mother-in-law's house is always the snuffer. I'm the snuffer. I don't know what that says about my personality. I don't know what she thinks about my personality, but I'm the snuffer, right? But Jesus said the light came into the world, and the darkness was not able to snuff it out. Let me ask you, are you struggling with something this week that you think, you know, it sure feels like the darkness of the world is able to snuff out the light in my life. I wake up struggling for hope and I go to bed just amazed that I made it through the day and I wonder how is tomorrow going to work? Salt and light because Jesus himself is salt and light. But guess what? He talked about salt and light without talking about the law. And to those who have grown up in the Jewish context, to those to whom Jesus was speaking, to those who were waiting for the Messiah, the idea was through the Pharisees that the law would be so upheld and the people would obey the law in such a way that the Messiah would come. But here's Jesus, new on the scene, and he's not talking about the law. So they wonder, Jesus, what is your commitment to the law? And that's our first point. Jesus says in verse 17, look at it with me. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. What what does that mean? Maybe Jesus has come and he's going to save in a different way other than the law. He's going to work in a different way. He's going to reverse the law or abolish the law. Say the law is not important in any way. Jesus says, no, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. 
So what is Jesus' commitment to the law? It's simply this. This is the answer for those of you who are filling out an outline in your heads. Jesus' commitment to the law is to fulfill the law because the law has an ongoing role in God's redemptive story. That is Jesus' commitment to the law. And we need to think about that for just a minute. Jesus, it's already been said by, the, by Matthew that he is fulfilling the prophets. It's been said six times in the first four chapters of Matthew that to fulfill the prophets, Jesus did X, Y, and Z. To fulfill the prophets, the Christ was born. To fulfill the prophets, right? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. This idea of the law and the prophets is simply shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. One, one commentator that I read this week said we might take the Old Testament scriptures more seriously if we read them as Jesus' Bible. Because they were Jesus' Bible. This is what he read, what he understood, what he memorized, what he used when he was tempted in the desert, right? The Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. But what Jesus is saying when he says he came to fulfill the law is that he came to flesh out the law. And yes, the pun is intended. That he came to flesh out the law. I want to give you three ways really quickly. He came to correctly apply the law to the heart of human beings. You're going to say in the next couple chapters, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said. When he says you have heard it said, it means that people have been teaching, right? Do not murder. And Jesus says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart against someone, you have already committed murder, right? Jesus comes and he says, no matter what you have heard said about the law, that it is applied to your actions, I am here to tell you the law correctly applied is to your hearts. Jesus fleshes out the law. The law reveals the character of our God. The law is how God wanted himself to be known in this Old Testament. But now we see Jesus, right? Remember what John says about Jesus. He is the Word. He's the Word of God. That's which comes from God himself, his own self-knowledge of himself, that which was with the Father from all eternity, the Word, that eternal self-knowledge of God in which God reveals himself, that Word has become flesh. Jesus has become flesh. The Word has become flesh. This Jesus makes the Father known to us. The Word, even if you will, the law become flesh. The revelation of who God is. Jesus is the human, the fleshly one, the law keeper. Jesus defines righteousness. But he not only defines righteousness, he accomplishes righteousness perfectly. Jesus fleshes out the law. And why does he do that? Jesus fleshes out the law because in God's redemptive story, the law is not done yet. 
I was part of one play. I've told you this before. Hello, Dolly, senior year, choked on my lines. You know, the, the production manager gave me my lines. I choked on those and couldn't remember my lines. There was lots of laughter among the group. It went back and forth like this for a while. My lines were given. I was staying my lines. My line, I mean, my brain just went flat. I was done. Jesus fulfills the law because the law's role in God's redemptive story is not done yet. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is this tiny little letter, and not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Right? Until, until. These two points into the future. Jesus is committed to the fulfillment of the law both in its correct application, both in the revelation of who God is in, him, in His self, and also in His human nature, completely accomplishing the law. He's committed to it because the law is not done in its role in God's redemptive story. It's not done. Jesus is saying the law is still on stage. The law has more lines to say. The law has had a lot of lines. I don't know if you guys like plays. I'm scared to death of them for obvious reasons. But those of you who love to act love them. And you love it when you get a role that has lots of lines. Don't you hate it when you get a role that has a line? <laughs> if I ever do a play again, I'm getting the role that has a line. Don't worry. But if you had an A line, you'd be sitting there all the time just waiting for your line to come up and you wonder, am I going to get to say my line? And then you wonder, is it over yet? The law has had a lot of lines in God's redemptive story. The law has been given that God's character might be defined, that God might reveal as much of himself that he wanted to through the law in the Old Testament. The law was given so that the righteous requirements of human beings, you and me, women and men, created in the image of God, might know what it means for us to bear his image rightly. That, you know, the law was given for that. That was a role that the law plays. It, us as humanity, right? The, the law illustrates for us what sin is. Because of the law and the gift of the law, we now understand sin, right? The Apostle Paul said, I didn't know what it meant to covet until I read Do Not Covet, and then suddenly, boom, I'm coveting everything. The law was given as the guard, and meaning the guardian that crushes our self-righteousness. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, right? But when the law correctly applied to my heart, crushes my own self-righteousness, doesn't it? But the law has continued its role. It defines for us what Jesus accomplished for us in his life. His righteousness, he kept the law perfectly. But it also, accomplished, it also tells us what he accomplished for, accomplished for us in his death. He set us free from the curse of the law. Hey, guess what? Get a hold of those orders of worship that you have in your hand. Go back and read them. You sang that already. You saying that you believe that. These are the roles that the law has played thus far. And Jesus is committed to fulfilling the law because the law still has a role to play. 
He says, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished, nothing is going to change about the law. It's on the stage. So let me ask you, when you think about the law in relation to your life, which parts of it would you like to abolish? Which parts of the law would you say, man, if that wasn't something that had been said, it'd be easier for me to live this life, right? Which parts would you like to see voided? What parts of the law are you tempted to abolish yourself? When we see the law that way, we believe that the law has something to do with us as the main role players in the play. And we think to ourselves, if that law about sexual immorality wasn't there, if, if the law that required sexual faithfulness, not just to your spouse, but to God, the one who created you, every one of us, every one of us, full stop, my life would be easier. But remember, the law and its role is to bring God glory. It's to glorify him. Let me ask this. What about loving your neighbor right now? Right now where we live in the polarized culture that we live in. What are the words that are said at your home that get communicated outside of your home that you're like, man, I shouldn't have said that. I, that shouldn't have gotten out. What about this idea that my life would be better if loving my neighbor were not a law that is central, that illustrates who God is and what Jesus has accomplished for us? Well, the last point is the therefore point of the 19 and 20. The question is, what are our commitment or what is our commitment as subjects in the kingdom, as followers of Jesus? What is our commitment to the law and why? Right? Jesus has just said he's committed to fulfilling the law because it still has a role to play. And then therefore, verse 19, ask the question, then what is our commitment to the law supposed to be? Followers of Jesus, subjects of his kingdom. What's our commitment to the law and why? Well, very briefly, this is what it says in 19. Our commitment to the law is to do it and to teach it so that God is glorified. Now listen about this. Jesus is about to apply the law correctly in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verses 19 and 20 that our commitment to the law is supposed to be to do it and to teach it so that Christ is glorified. Look at verse 19 with me. He says one option other than doing it is to relax the law, right? He says, those who relax the law and teach others that you should just relax the law. 
those will be called the least in the kingdom of God, right? Those who teach maybe like these, you know, God didn't really mean, you fill in the blank. Who does that sound like? It sounds a lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? Those who relax the law and teach others to do it. This one is a little bit sharper for us, I think. What is the area of the law that you would love to see relaxed? My life would be better. I wouldn't receive so much persecution from those of my friends who are in the world around me if this part of the law were just relaxed. I, I, I think that, you know, for my sake, I'm going to relax the law. I, I'm not going to do that or teach that. Teaching it is proclamation. This is what pleases God right? What is that? One commentator said that when we relax the law, we weaken the law's power to search the motives of the heart. That's pretty good, isn't it? When we weaken the law, we weaken the law's power to search the motives of the heart. I don't know what it means to be called the least in the kingdom. I don't know if it means you're not in the kingdom. I don't know if it means that you are in the kingdom, but the role in which you played has not glorified Christ the way it should have when you weaken the law. But at least we can all agree that to be called least in the kingdom is nothing that we want. We want our lives to glorify Christ and our orientation toward the law matters, right? So I have a question to ask, and I we encourage you to answer it. Where have you or are you tempted to relax the law and to teach others the same? And as I look at my own heart, when I do that, it is so that I might receive the glory of others instead of Christ himself being glorified. So what's the positive part where Jesus says, this is what you should do. You should do the law and teach others, right? So when we attempt to do the law, when we hold up the law and say, this is how God wants us to live, right? When we do that, and Jesus is about to apply some of the law to our hearts in the Sermon on the Mount, what ends up happening is we or others are convicted. When we live a life that is godly, and fulfills the law and the way that we live and treat others, even imperfectly, it is acting as conviction to others. This is the very salt that Jesus is talking about, the salt of stopping decay in his world is being convicted because the second thing that happens is that either we are convicted when we see the law and we go, we're not fulfilling that, and we go, we need a Savior, and others who watch us go, if that's the law and if that's what's required, I need a Savior. And look at the glory of the gospel. This word that is still sharp, right? This word that still exposes us. When we cry out and say we need a Savior, guess what? We've got one. That's the glory, right? We've got a Savior. Jesus himself who fleshed out the law, defined it and accomplished it perfectly. But there's another stage that we still need to think about 
Because the law and in doing the law and teaching others to do the same gives us hope that there is real hope for change, hope for transformation, that we're not always going to be the same women and the same men that we are today, that there is real power at work in us. And Jesus says those who do and teach the law, great in the kingdom of God will they be. Again, what does it mean to be great? I'm not exactly clear. But what I do know what happens is that when we do the law and teach the law, Jesus is glorified. Because what is heightened is not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And why is this so? Why is this our commitment to the law? It's answered in verse 20. Because Christ's righteousness is what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is what is required. Christ's righteousness. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One commentator said, this is the blow across the bow for all who are sitting and listening to Jesus. What in the world, how could that possibly be? As I read this week, it was described like this. The Pharisees thought about righteousness as more and more. The righteousness that the Pharisees thought about was the righteousness that was a seeking to fulfill the law and, and go even beyond, beyond the law, skin deep, but to go beyond it and to say, look, not just are we called to keep the Sabbath, but you can't even carry your mat on the Sabbath. Do you remember they told it to that guy who was paralyzed at the waters? That's not in the Old Testament. That was going beyond. That was like more and more, right? But in one sense, it minimized the law. It relaxed the law, didn't it? Because it didn't apply the law to the heart. It only applied the law to the action. And what happens when we apply the law to the action? We're seeking to be self-glorified. Look, I'm keeping the law. I'm keeping the law better than anybody else. But because a righteousness greater than the Pharisees is required, the righteousness that we need was described as deeper and deeper righteousness, right? Righteousness that points to the lead in the play. The lead in the play is not me. Look, the lead in the play, let's not get this wrong, is not the law. That's not true either. The lead in the play in the story of God's redemption is Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, the one who fleshed out the law. Because in living in light of the law, to do it and to teach it, Jesus is glorified because Jesus is needed. He's needed by absolutely every one of us. We're not putting forth our righteousness to others. We're proclaiming the righteousness that is by faith, the gift of God. You see, a right understanding of the law has to come from a new heart that's not the heart that I was physically born with in this world or that you were physically born with in this world. It has to be a new heart and a new spirit.
And that's where the quotation in the front of your order of worship comes in. That is the covenant promise that God gives. He promises to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And guess what he says of that heart and the spirit? One on which the law is coded. It's like you get the video games for free when you get the hard drive. The law is coded on our hearts so that we would love the law, that we would desire the law, but not just that, that we would be empowered to keep the law by the power of the Holy Spirit at work. That that's the way we're supposed to think about the law. I thought about this all week. Guess what? I stand convicted before you. I wish the law were less strenuous. I wish that my keeping of the law showed my self-righteousness so that I would be glorified. And you guys, if we can say that, then we can look at each other and say, all right, Jesus died for you. Bradley, Jesus died for you. And not just to define the law and fulfill the law and to accomplish the law, but to give you a new heart and a new spirit so that you might be changed, Bradley. So that your orientation to the law might be changed. That we would love it, desire it, and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep it. Listen, we are not saved by our righteousness. We are saved, as Romans tells us, by a righteousness that comes by faith. And it's faith in Jesus. Hebrews talks about the power of the word. I'm closing with this, by the way. The power of the word to search us. My buddy that used to live in New England loved the windy weather on the North Shore. And he would say, the winds of New England, they will search you. They will find any part of your bare skin that's exposed. And they'll show you, hey, your belly is exposed because the winds will search you. The writer of Hebrews says that God's word searches us. It is alive and active and it cuts us to the very heart of our beings. It divides our intentions from our actions. It searches us. But guess what passage immediately follows that description of the word? Do you know it in Hebrews 4? Go back and read it this week. Guess what it says? that we are not to be afraid because we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the glory of God. And he has opened wide to you and me the throne room of grace that we might enter in there and receive from God the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. Listen, if we will let the law be the law, we will be driven to lives that glorify Christ and that make his name great. C.T.K. Newton, I long for us to be salt and light in Newton and Wellesley and beyond. We need to be changed for that, don't we? We need to be changed. Our hearts need to be changed Jesus says to you, I know it. I know you do. I'm the one that told you. And I'm the one that lived your righteousness for you. I'm the one that died and paid the curse of the penalty of the death so that you would come and feed from me. And I am the one 
who is changing you by the power of spirit that proceeds from me, proceeds from the Father, and changes you. That is good news. And the law is still on stage. It's still on stage. Because in our orientation to the law, Jesus is exalted. Will you pray with me?